Yo, 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 it's Matt. It's Josh. What's good? It's your boy Darius. You are now tuned into the Dominate the Decade podcast. Let's go. I'm trapped in. I'm trapped in. I know it. Hey, I know I'm trapped. I'm trapped. I'm trapped. I know I'm trapped. Yeah, yeah. Hey, look. I heard my niggas talking about me. Whisper getting close. Uh, niggas saying breaking bread. Hey, fellas, how y'all been doing? Hey, you know, I'm pretty good. Uh, can't complain, honestly. I'm doing just the same, man. It's been a, a very tumultuous week, but uh, it's been going good. I'm healthy, so can't really complain. Seems like the world's back to opening up. Uh, Josh, Josh, you back to work, ain't it? Yeah, just started back this week. I don't know how I feel about it. I actually got work a little bit later today, but uh, it's all good, man. Glad to be back working. And I'm still waiting on this unemployment check to hit. And so, but a couple of days ago, I was like, wow, my account ain't been this low in a minute. So I just had to start applying to jobs everywhere. Shout out Dick Sporting. Yeah. Y'all listening to this, I need y'all to go ahead and call the kid back so you can go ahead and bring me in. I went there the other day. I saw the wardrobe that, not the wardrobe, I guess the uniforms everybody was wearing. They're not wearing uniforms. They're wearing basketball shorts. That's my kind of job. Once again, Dick Sporting Good. If you are listening, call the kid back. Facts. You need the summer employment, man. Need that. Tell you, I was. It was crazy. Uh, I know college students are supposed to be applying to internships and whatnot. This summer, I was locked and loaded. I had one in New York. I had done applied to. I had spent about six hours on the application, so I felt like I had a pretty good chance. Then I had another one in Atlanta, down in the A, with my guy Killer Mike. Not obviously his company, but nonetheless in Atlanta. Then all this happened, so. Looks like we're going to find myself at a, a somebody's local grocery store. <laughs> hey, as long as you get in that bag, bro, that's all that matters. <laughs> to be honest, man. But, hey, let's go ahead and hop into it. So, first first thing we want to talk about, the movie Crash. Josh, you want to tell us about the movie Crash? So, this, I did not even know um, about this movie. Uh, I had a friend recommend it to me not too long ago. Shout out to Crystal. Um, but, the winner of, I think, four Academy Awards uh, put out in 2005, uh, starring Ludacris, Terrence Howard, um, Don Cheadle, and a few other people. Pretty star-studded cast, but uh, really great movie. I liked it a lot. Um, I actually watched it a couple times, so definitely looking forward to talking about it. And there were a lot of different things to talk about in it. Darius, you rock with the movie? Yeah, 10 out of 10. Uh... I think it's a great, you know, depiction of like racial relations and how uh, interconnected everyone's lives are, regardless of, you know, how big or small those connections are. Um, and I think it does a lot of, it does a good job of humanizing a lot of different sorts of people. So great movie. Man, from the jump of the tension in the movie was like, it was there. It really was there. Like as soon as you, you took, well, I was about to say, as soon as you put the DVD in, nobody does DVDs anymore. <laughs> as soon as I start watching, I'm like, good, goodness gracious, it's like what's about to happen next. Yeah, like the opening scene, it starts off with uh, the, obviously the crash that happened. And the first thing that kind of like, pops up with the uh interaction and with the tension is like the lady uh the white lady is arguing back and forth with the asian woman and she's like mimicking how she's speaking and stuff i was like oh okay this is the type of movie it's gonna be so i was like sheesh and then it just cuts from scene to scene with all these different interactions and stuff and i'm like man th this is tense real quick i thought it was pretty cool that it seems like throughout the whole movie it it starts on that scene and then it ends on that scene, just a different set of people. And I was like, okay, that's really cool. I don't know what kind of technique that is. And it was just like so many different nationalities of people and they're kind of interwoven, I guess. And at some point they all kind of come together in their own way. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting. Um, it was probably beneficial for the movie to base it in LA because it's such a international city and so many different cultures and ethnicities around and like they're all in this condensed area. So that was super beneficial for the movie uh, and talking about the different things that it's talking about. Yeah, because with that different mix of people you got in LA, like this movie honestly could happen like in real life. Um, just because like you said, and I think that's a part of the, the thing that was cool for me to see it like end where it began is because like, you know, 
everything's kind of like a cycle, so to speak. So. Yeah, I thought that part was uh, very reminiscent of, uh, I don't know if y'all seen Pulp Fiction, but uh, the whole gist of that movie is all these different stories. And it seems like they're not connected at all. You're like, well, well what's going on? But by the end of the movie, it's like, you see how everything is connected. And that's what I think the purpose of this movie is, is kind of showing like the latent messages is um, everyone and everything is connected. So we're not that different at all. If you look at the stereotypes, I guess they kind of fit in the movie, right? So uh, the Hispanic guy is like the guy who works on his hands a little bit, right? He's the guy who fixes the doors. Then you have the, I don't know what descent that guy was. was he? It was Persian. Persian. Okay. So you have the Persian guy who owns the store, which a lot of times you see that. Then you have the white guy who's- I think he might've just been a police officer. Okay. And then you have a Hispanic, like kind of housemaid, I guess you could say. A black lady that a lot of times that works like in the office. Like I feel like, okay, this meets a lot of the stereotypes. I was trying to figure out like in that neighborhood that the Hispanic guy and his family lived in, was that a multicultural neighborhood? Was that just morally like probably just for Hispanics? I know a lot of times in California, it's kind of, it's kind of very divided. Like, I mean, it is probably a lot of times anywhere else. But I was shocked to see a uh, ludicrous in there. But he was really speaking some facts and talking about, I, I thought it was ironic. He's like, I'll never rob a black man. And then sure enough in the film, he starts robbing a black guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was definitely one of the woke ones. Uh, he gave major hotel vibes a little bit. Like he was talking about uh, the buses having these large windows. So, and they're manufactured like that. So you can kind of see the people of color that are subjected to riding the buses. And then he was talking about, like you just said, uh, ro not robbing black people and us like criminalizing ourselves. Um, he was also talking about all these different things, basically. And it just kind of made you think you're like, hmm, that is interesting. Why is that? And I don't know. He, he just he was definitely very woke. He was also talking for a little bit about the music. I don't know if y'all heard that part. When yeah. He what did he say? He was like, at first we used to have pure music and then the, I don't know if he was talking about during the crack uh, epidemic or whatever, but then the 80s and they needed some else, some non-positive music going. So that's whenever we got into the rapping and stuff. But yeah, and when I was listening to him talk, I was like, I literally was kind of going to my computer and I was like, is stuff true or is he just talking? But yeah, that was dope. Lubick has been doing this thing for a minute. Between the music, yeah. the movies, and all that, I didn't realize that as much until I watched The Breakfast Club with them. And they was just talking about all his different projects. I'm like, look, Ludacris been doing this thing. Yeah, and then uh, he just recently, he, I, I don't want to say he moved to Africa because I don't know how accurate that is. I know that he, uh, he now has citizenship in Ghana, I believe. Um, and so I don't know if he's like, his permanent place of residence is in Ghana or not, but I know he has citizenship there, so. That's really cool too. Man, that's interesting. That seems like a little wave people are hopping on, uh, going to Africa and setting up shop there. And a lot of people talked about that. I know Matt, your boy Nick Cannon is talking about that too. Yeah, Akon's really got it going. Akon, it seems like Akon has kind of come back and started convincing people like, hey, come to Africa. Cause you know, one of the more popular things that he's kind of hitting people on, he's like, look, in Africa, you really own your land. It's like in America, yeah. you own it, but you really pay taxes on it consistently. If you don't pay your taxes, they'll take it from you. So you come to Africa, you can own land. I think Akon also has like, I think we talked about it before, he's a gas station in his backyard. So he's really running things in Africa. He's powering a city with uh, a debt from a uh, somebody's government. I'm pretty sure China, but I'm not 100% sure of that. But yeah, so yeah. Akon really got it going on out there in Africa. But also yeah. in this movie, there was a groping scene that was, I felt that was like real, it was real important. Joshua will tell us a little more about it. Yeah, so the scene with uh, Terrence Howard and his uh, wife in the movie, I forgot her name. Um, Andy Newton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's been in a lot of different movies. Uh, we were just talking about before the show, uh, Pursuit of Happiness. She was in there, too. She's a great actor. But I felt like this scene where they get pulled over, um, first, they're joking around. Like, they're just having a good time, of course. Like, they're not doing anything, like, wrong, per se. But things start to escalate. And I felt like this is very telling of the time that we are in now and very relatable to the time that we're in now with like police brutality and all these things and how they can escalate so quickly. But they start off just joking. Like they were even like just laughing with the officer and she was like, hey, how are you doing tonight? And everything was fine. But this guy, he was definitely racist in, a, in multiple different ways. He had 
some uh, racially charged objectives and things like that. Then he was just like harassing them. He was like, well, what was going on doing all this? Asking Terrence Howard to, to stand on like one foot and like point his nose, point at his nose and um, all these different things. And he's like, I don't even drink. Like what's going on? So he was really just harassing them. And then he had him up against the car and then he took it upon himself, the cop that is, to push the the wife against the car as well. And like while he's just sitting there, Terrence Howard that is, and he's like, frisking um the wife and obviously being super inappropriate with it and it was kind of in a dehumanizing way for both the wife and terrence howard like he you can tell that he was doing it for a reason trying to incite violence or trying to incite anger in terrence howard where it was like okay you can't do anything in this situation so i'm gonna do whatever i want and you just have to sit there and even apologize for it like he was like hmm so is there an issue I could get you for whatever the act that you were doing, like pretty much making up stuff. Um, or you can just get back in your car and head home. Are we going to have a problem? And so I felt like that was so dehumanizing and it really felt like he took away his manhood there because he couldn't even do anything to protect his wife without getting into a situation where he might end up shot, you know? And I think, Another interesting thing to me that came out of that scene was kind of the aftermath of it, where uh, when they got home, the the wife was obviously very upset and she was angry, not only at the officer for, you know, sexually harassing her in that way, but also she was mad at Terrence Howard for not like stepping up and like being more of a man and like, you know, reacting in a more protective way. And then Terrence Howard, his whole thing was, okay, well, I'm just trying to make it home because he knows that if he did react violently, then I was obviously going to go left for both of them. So. Uh, especially with everything going on today with like protests about, you know, police brutality and just, you know, systemic oppression in general, obviously that brings up a lot of different feelings for a lot of different people. And so there are some people that do want to take the more militant route and go out and I'm not necessarily saying advocate for violence, but take a more militant approach to seeking out justice versus people who are making other decisions just because they feel like they need to as a method of survival. So. I just think that, that that one scenario just has like really broad implications as far as, you know, the world in general. Yeah, it's like the wife is very mad, which is justifiable, but it's like, yo, if I react to this thing, this thing is about to take a whole nother left turn. And then guys like that in that mo- in the movie, specifically like a white, a white cop racist, he's looking to take it there. Like, I think as a matter of fact, he's kind of hoping that you say something. Go ahead and say something so I can get to use this weapon or whatever the case may be, and it could be 10 times worse. Yeah. So that really puts Terrence in, I forgot his name in the movie, but that puts him in a real bad situation. Yeah, and I think that brought up uh, an interesting discussion about the different struggles that Black men have and Black women have. And it's like, the woman in this case, she was like looking to her husband like, hey, protect me, but at the same time, the husband is thinking about, I could die right here. Like, so what do you really do? And then you see all that come into play when they get back home and they're arguing in the um, in their bedroom, where it's like, you can see the anger on both sides and you can see the argument for both sides being upset. And that manifests itself in between them. And they're like arguing at each other. They're like, oh man, F you and all this stuff. But the actual problem was this cop over here who started all this and they were having a great night. I think they just came back from a award show or whatever. And you can see how just quickly um, things can take a left turn. But I also thought it was interesting with uh, the other cop, the cop's partner, where he wasn't really saying anything. And he was just, he was definitely one of the newer recruits or whatever. And that was, um, I think they said it was like his first or second job. Um, but I think that brought up a discussion about police accountability within each other or uh, between each other. And if the other cop came in and said, hey, like, you're, you're completely wrong for this. Like, hey, why are you going so hard? Why are you um, causing so many problems? If the other cop stepped in and said that, then that would serve as some accountability between those cops. But like you saw in the movie, he didn't really do anything. So um very difficult situation to deal with all around yeah uh something that i always have believed 
was the fact that you can't, well, let me back up. So there are proponents of, or supporters of the police who obviously say that, you know, police are human too. We should, you know, be more understanding of the fact that they have a very like stressful job. Um, they have to make very, you know, split second decisions. But I've always been one to believe that you can't give people grace without also having some method of accountability like you were talking about. Because I mean, and it comes up all the time, you know, not all cops, but like there should be a way to one, figure out who the bad cops are before, you know, people end up getting like brutalized or murdered. And then even when we find out who those bad cops are in the event that something does happen, there has to be some method of accountability, some way of saying like, okay, this was not okay. And these are the actual concrete repercussions of doing this thing. And so people who are looking down on like protesters and whatnot for going out and speaking out about that, oftentimes don't understand that aspect of, or I'm not even gonna say they don't understand because some of them just don't want to understand that. And as a cop and with the whole accountability thing, I would like to believe like as a human, if you see somebody being done wrong, you need to stand up for them, especially because a lot of times these cops have like this all power whenever they stop somebody. But I thought it was interesting that, what did he say? When, and whenever the younger cop asked, maybe it was the, the head sheriff or something, that he, when he told him that he What's wanted in to it? Yeah, when he told them he wanted to separate, and then the older cop comes back to him later on, and he's like, you don't know what you are. You don't know what you don't know what you're gonna see in these streets, and these streets are kind of gonna show you who you are. And it's crazy because towards the end of the movie, the, the the new guy who at one point stopped Terrence Howard from potentially being arrested or killed, he ends up killing another black man. Yeah, I thought that was uh, really interesting too, especially the scene with the lieutenant where the younger cop he came to him, he was like, "Hey, I'd like to be reassigned. I'd like to be put into a different car." And the lieutenant said a lot of different things. Um, he said it in a joking way. I thought the scene was funny, but it was speaking on some real issues where he was like, okay, so why do you want to be um, moved? And he was like, I don't like, I don't feel comfortable with riding in the car with this other guy. Um, and then the lieutenant was like, oh, so we have been fostering a bigoted cop for 17 years, 11 years, which I have been under my control. And he brought up how like, as a black man, it was already hard enough to get to the point where he was at as lieutenant in um, the LAPD and how the ramifications of bringing out this racist cop and saying that we need to get rid of him, how that would end up being bad for him and how that would look bad on him. Um, so he had to go through all of these different things just to say that this cop needs to be out of there. So maybe that shines a light on what goes in on inside these like police stations or these departments where it's like, okay, we know this guy has these racial tendencies, but what does that say about us as a whole that we employed this guy? He has been in this system for multiple different years and all the different things that goes along with that, because I think that just makes everyone look bad. So maybe that's why there's a lack of accountability and it ends up just being a circle that doesn't really solve itself. And I mean, that gets at the systemic aspect of the problem, which again, is what people are upset about. It's not just one cop. It's, you know, the one cop that did it, the in George Floyd's case, the other cops who sat there and let it happen. It's the higher up people that didn't hold them accountable. It's the legal structure that made it possible. It's a whole sort of like, system of other problems that need to be addressed to just have it so and that's what people are upset yeah. about some of the prejudices prejudices that were displayed maybe by a police officer toward different people were also displayed between the different races in the movie josh you want to talk about that yeah i thought that was uh really interesting and really real too because i feel like as black people we feel like this fight is just with us or there's racism just against us and like we, we probably deal with a lot and more prevalent than other races, but some of these other races like Hispanics or like in the movie with the Persians, um, the Persians ended up having their store um, dismantled and then they wrote like something racist about Arabs and they're not even Arabs, but 
they see them just as Middle Eastern or whatever, and they see them all as the same. And then between the Arab or the Persian uh, store owner and the Hispanic uh, locksmith, there was a whole bunch of prejudice there. He was like, "Oh, so why don't you fix my door?" He's like, "Okay, I fixed the door, but no, I fixed the lock, but you need to get a door, a new door." and fix that and he was like oh so do you know someone else that like fixes doors like obviously having a prejudice against them saying oh well you're trying to cheat me and get like your buddy in here to fix the door so y'all can have more money and it's like those prejudice between races are more than just black versus white or black versus hispanic it's like hispanic versus persians or white versus anywhere else you know there's there's multiple different levels to it so i think this movie kind of showed that there's multiple different arenas of this systematic racism and cultural racism and stuff okay i think uh no go ahead Darius. I'm, I'm gonna go somewhere and, um i was just gonna say because obviously racism is a social construct uh and it's something that we're all socialized so we're all growing up taking in these different messages from uh the things that we see on tv um our own personal lived experiences which may be true to us but not valid when we generalize them to other people um and so basically we're all socialized into a system and it's it's not right to assume that you know white people are the only people who are affected by prejudice um to assume that they're the only ones who take in this these unfair representations of other groups of people and then don't in any way shape or form act on those in some way like white people and and i also want to be very clear i'm not like excusing racism against any group but i think that there's just something that every individual person on some level has to do there are some internal questions we have to ask about the way in which we view other people and whether or not we act on those beliefs and there was a reason why i said uh prejudices against other people as opposed to racism against other people uh just because like the way that racism works is that uh you have to have the the social economic political and otherwise in any in in and in any other form capital to oppress another group of people uh you ha you just have to have the numbers to do it uh, and like black people and other minorities just don't have those numbers to oppress another group of people. And so that's why uh, it said that, you know, these other ethnic groups or racial groups can't be racist. Uh, and I think the problem with that is with the American education system being as screwed up as it is, we use the terms racism and prejudice interchangeably when they refer to two totally different things. Uh, and that we also have people who aren't trained on issues of social justice trying to speak on social justice issues, which ends up making things worse, because now we have an entire group of people that is wildly misinformed about the way in which things work and the way in which things should be. Now these people are growing up and they're having to make decisions off of that misinformation, which then just makes things worse. That's that's the big argument against Twitter and stuff like that. It's like not every everybody does have a voice, let's be very clear. But it's like now everybody feel like their opinion is correct. And so now people are misinformed and you go out and make moves based off this opinion that was never right in the first place, instead of kind of leaving it to being informed by somebody who's knowledgeable, maybe asking the right questions and then like moving off of that, I guess you could say. Exactly. Yeah. I thought it was interesting how this movie kind of shows that every person, number one, but also every race has their own individual fights and struggles. Mm -hmm. um, where some might be bigger than others like if black people are getting killed obviously that's a huge huge struggle as opposed to sandra bullock in this movie she said that she is always angry like she's always mad and she doesn't know why and she was feeling like she was depressed and then mad like you were saying earlier her friend was like oh well i have to go do something else uh i'll call you later and then doesn't end up calling her so um <laughs> that was that was very unique of showing these individual struggles between these races and the Hispanic um, guy always being prejudiced or being um, identified as like 
a gang member or this person that's gonna steal or break into their house and all these things even though he's a family man he goes home and he reads bedtime stories to his daughter i thought that was crazy at the end you have some notes i thought that it was crazy at the end so the guy gets mad because his store gets kind of ransacked i guess you can say and he goes over to the he goes to finds the spandex guy's home address which he finds off the paperwork and he goes to kill him the little girl he approaches the spandex guy in his yard the little girl sees what's going on, but doesn't completely understand it. So she goes and runs and jumps into her dad's hands just as the guy shoots the gun. Dude, I had to pause the movie. I was like, this could not be happening. Like this can't, and then the, the director did a very good job of, okay, like building the point to how close the girl is to her dad. And then kind of gets the, uh, the viewer to be kind of emotionally attached to the little girl. And then she jumps and the bullet goes off. And I was like, oh my God. But that just shows how every part of the movie was important. The guy never fully understood how to shoot the gun. He, the, the, his daughter didn't send him back to the car because it was getting kind of hostile between him and the, and the gun owner. I guess you said the gun owner shot, the guy who owns the shop who's gun owner. You get what I'm saying? So I yeah, thought that was great. the guns. Yeah, I, I was like, did he, did, she, did that child really get shot like that? That thing about took me out. Yeah, whenever that happened, I literally, like, gasped. I was like, oh, no. And then it ended up that she didn't get shot, which I was a little confused about. Like, how did that not happen? But now that you say that uh, about the the guy, the Persian um, store owner, not being able to, like, fully understand how to shoot it or whatever and work it, that makes sense because he probably missed her. But, yeah. uh that whole cloak of uh, protection that that storyline I feel like was super important. I didn't really understand the importance until that scene. So that just shows how great this story writing is in this movie um, and everything kind of worked together. Hey, and also, okay. So I'm just going to hint on this real quick. We'll talk about Killer Mike a little bit later, but he's brought up something that I really enjoy. By the way, Killer Mike is an entrepreneur. He is, he's a rapper. I think he's a social activist too. He had that really big speech right after the killing of George Floyd happened, kind of telling the people, he's like, yo, I'm disappointed too, but don't tear up our backyard and stuff. But that's just a little bit of information about Killer Mike too, to have some context. And so he has this thing, oh, it was, it's really bad how history has been whitewashed because then people don't have appreciation for others, people, races that help build America. And then it really shows whenever you have situations of like supremacy, you think you're better than, you think you're better than another race because of the color of your skin. And it's like, and then you grow up in an education system and you think specifically, I'm talking about white sperm, so I guess you'd say, you think that white people did everything growing up. Like, you know, that white people uh, created everything. They were here first, this, that, and the third. But if you, if the history isn't whitewashed, you see that, that a lot of culture came from like Africans and there's like, okay, cool. And Hispanics are important too, because a lot of times they do some of the jobs such as like, you know, in Texas, California, every case may be like the farming that nobody else wants to do. And they've probably done their own things to help build America as well. But when you whitewash history, then one group of people feel like they did everything and everybody else is just kind of like, they were, they just came like kind of splurge off what we already had. Yeah. And then you don't get the, even the important white people that we, you know, hear about in history, the George Washingtons, the Abraham Lincolns or whatnot, a lot of, the influence that they did have was only made possible by, you know, the suffering that it, a lot of times that they themselves or that they were complicit in, you know, upholding the suffering that they inflicted on other groups of people. So like George Washington, I'm actually, I'm not going to say that because I think he owned slaves, but I'm not in. He did. He did. He did. Come back up so we can edit that part out. George Washington owned slaves. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was a racist. Uh, he didn't see that black people and white people would ever be like socially equal or politically equal. He only freed the slaves out of, of political necessity, not because he wanted to. Uh, basically any of the founding fathers, most of them owned slaves. Thomas Jefferson owned slaves while having an affair with one of them. Uh, hmm. And not only did he have a number of black children, but he also went to great lengths to use scientific racism to improve, to not improve, to prove that, you know, races were inferior uh, and things like that. But, you know, if you were to ask any, like, elementary school student, like, who was Thomas Jefferson, who was George Washington, they're these just, like, 
great monumental people and we still build monuments. Superheroes. Exactly. Uh, but their entire legacy was built on the backs of black people and on the land that they stole from, you know, Native Americans. So. Mm, Darius bringing the receipts today. <laughs> I got time. Dr. Umar said, uh, whenever they were talking, all the looting was going on, Dr. Umar was like, you better go steal something because we still don't have our reparations. And so with that being said, you, and, uh, and your grand, your grandparents, great-grandparents, when the people in your family line helped build this place and they still not giving it to you, you better go ahead and loot. As a matter of fact, I'd be disappointed to you. I'd be disappointed in you if you weren't doing so. So I was like, it's always good to hear from Dr. Umar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, you said that about the Killer Mike video or the speech that he made. I was just listening to that the other day. Uh, Sean Croxton put it on the Quote of the Day show. Yo, what he's been doing um, this week with, usually he has like motivational um, quotes or speeches or whatever um, in like either long form. Like they usually range from like five minutes to like 20 minutes sometimes. And he has other people speaking, but he usually like, introduces the show with like the quote like he'll come in and say some, some things about the person that um is speaking and then at the end whenever they're done he'll like wrap it up kind of like promote um his book club or whatever but this week he's just been dropping the audio and uh, i don't know if y'all saw i put one on my story and it was like um a child that was saying um making a speech about black lives matter and this different stuff so he did that all week where he didn't say anything. He just introduced the audio. And then after it was done, it just cut off. So whatever he was doing with that, um, and even the Killer Mike video too, I was like, man, he, he's really bringing some awareness and he's really using his platform, how it should be used in a moment that needs it the most. Yeah, because with all of his subscribers, their quote of the day, I was looking at the bio of it, and it's like the amount of followers and uh, subscribers they have is crazy. So it's like, so those people who have made it habit to listen to that daily is like, okay, now you're getting a little bit of, uh, you're not, we're not just going to keep moving like this isn't happening. It's like, nah, let's talk about it. And I want y'all to hear about it and hear these different people's respect and what they're going through. I heard somebody say with yeah. these apologies that, not apologies and these acknowledgements of what's going on in the earth, if, if they don't say Black Lives Matter, I'm not even listening to it. I, I don't even want to hear. You see this a lot with, like, you know, the Drew Brees situation or the Dabble oh, Sweeney. Man. And it's like, you did not say Black Lives Matter one time. Meanwhile, Mr. Muschamp is out here walking with the football team. And I'm telling you right now, as I, I feel like most Black mothers, Black families, it's like you got to start taking a hard look at US, uh, Clemson and USC, the differences. Because, yeah, Clemson might have a more dominant program right now. But it's like as a mother, father who has a black child who's potentially going to these schools, it's like, wait a minute. Muschamp is out here, spoke quickly about it. You know what I'm saying? Black Lives Matter out, out at the protest. Meanwhile, the guy from the upstate goes through six minutes of just talking around it and then doing the whole thing. And obviously I am Christian, but kind of just throwing God into it. And it almost sounds as if like you're kind of like not trying to say too much about the actual topic. So you throw the Bible in there and that infuriates, like that infuriates me like none other. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if y'all heard about the uh, Clemson coach. This kind of came out last week where yep. he, a Clemson coach uh, allegedly like called a player the N word. And I saw that. I was like, whoa like and then people were saying it wasn't even that that made them super upset obviously that would make me upset um and probably made them upset but what made them the most upset is that Dabo never addressed that Dabo never said anything acknowledged the team um didn't even give a discussion with the coach that said that or punish the guy that said that because that's huge you got a college football team filled of black players and you won't even publicly say something about a coach calling a player the n-word that that is very uh telling i feel like and like you said i feel like these parents of players they really need to look at who they're sending their kids to because it's more than just about football or about some games like these men are playing a part in shaping yeah their lives like they're they're coming to them at like 18 19 and they're spending very formative years surrounded by these people in clemson it's not a very diverse place too so if you're not 
with the program like I don't know if I could be surrounded by all of that and then inside of like the locker room you're dealing with those things too yeah no that was that is crazy and you hit on something very good so you mean through 18 through 22 and in a and in a population that comes where you're the minority and then like the coach you would think of no other place especially there you would hear want to hear the coach that yo i got y'all's back yo i believe black lives matters too so the fact that you just kind of sitting there trying to just dance around the topic is like hmm but I guess it's all in some some people's objective strictly go to college, get you uh play your college years, go to the NFL. But if it's like if your parents are looking at all of like the environment, I guess you could say it's like, nah, that, that might not be our best move. That might not. And I feel like that will hurt Clemson recruiting. I'm kinda of just hoping it does, because I feel like that's inexcusable. You go on a twenty a seven, ten minute rate and never say Black Lives Matter. It's like, come on, bro. Come on, yes. I, I hate that. I hate that. And the, I'm hearing a lot more about this as we listen to the different people. It's like whenever they keep using the Christianity, the Bible thing, no, I'm all for Christianity. But it's like instead of like addressing the issue, the issue that's at hand. Yeah, especially in Davos' case, because like you said, your team is mostly Black people. You play a very Black-dominated sport. Like, how do you not advocate? If Black lives truly mattered, then you need to also advocate for the ones that don't make you money. Yeah. Like all black lives have to matter, not just the people that you benefit from directly. Yeah, exactly. And I think that kind of, I know we're getting off the point here, but uh, <laughs> with the NFL, uh, I know y'all saw the statement that Roger Goodell put out. And uh, I retweeted a tweet, I think yesterday, where he was saying during his speech or whatever, and the fact of these speeches coming out and these statements coming from all these brands, that's a whole nother different topic. Um, but during the speech that he was saying, he was like, there would be no NFL without black players. And the tweet that I retweeted was like, that's the real reason why you're saying this. And it seems so disingenuous that they're coming with these things now, because literally three years ago, four years ago, it might be, they had this whole situation in their lap and they could have took action and they could have supported Colin Kaepernick and they could have raised awareness about all these different things but instead they went a whole other different route but now you see all these injustices all these people and brands speaking out and now the nfl comes and says something like bro come on get out of here with that like you could have done something before you had the opportunity you fumbled the bag but now that is popular you know what I'm saying? Now, now it's really important that you side with them because at this point, it's like this is where the movement is going. It's like, yeah, we could have done better. All right, go get it. Get a grip. That's, it's terrible. That's, and, I can't stand it. But. Yeah, and thinking about it from like a branding slash marketing perspective, it would hurt you to not even say anything. Yeah. It would be catastrophic if you didn't say anything. So it seems, like I just said, really disingenuous that these brands are coming out saying all these different things like, Ben and Jerry's did a great job, whatever they were saying. But the NFL comes out and says all these different things. So if you don't say anything, it looks bad. But a brand that had the platform to speak out and be one of the first to speak out, now you're saying something. I'm just not with it at all. Yeah, and not even just because there's a time to just say stuff and then there's time to actually do it. And like the NFL definitely could actually like do stuff like you know donate like y'all have more money than you ever really know what to do with so like you can actually donate to causes that are actually fighting against injustices you can give Colin Kaepernick a job like there's so many things you could actually do but they're not doing any of that the thing is with kind of how to connect what y'all two just said could have given Colin Kaepernick a job but back then, it wasn't the popular thing to do. You didn't want to upset your little fan base or whatever. I really wish now, looking back at it, I really wish that we could have gotten the black people as a whole to stop watching the NFL to really hurt. Now that I understand how that could eventually hurt your pockets or whatnot, or we could, like, push the advertiser of the NFL to be like, well, we're not supporting you unless you say something to the league because that really could have gotten some stuff done. But, yeah, so it's crazy. Uh, do y'all Do y'all think that if and when, probably when, the NFL comes back, there's going to be like protests and people are going to stop watching now? I don't think so. 
I, I don't, especially coming off this pandemic, folk gonna be so excited to have sports. They're gonna just be doing whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but I think also the NFL, because see, uh, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, the military was paying the NFL to do the whole Star Spangled Banner and National Anthem. And yeah, that. yeah, they were paying them to do that. I think what the NFL is about to start doing it. I'm sorry, we don't even want your money. Everybody stay in the locker room. And then we'll, oh no, they don't televise that portion or something like that. Because I know they're paying and just so they can get rid of the whole thing. Because you can bet your last dollar that guys are going to be kneeling now. Like that, that, that is a done deal. I think what they'll do is they'll try to keep guys in the locker room until after that happens. So I'll be like a fan type experience. And then the players come out after that. Because, yeah, because I think they asked Adrian Peterson, like, so are you going to be kneeling next to He said, without a doubt. And I feel like now you even have white guys who kind of un- – some, not all, because Drew Brees before, you know. Not Drew Brees. Uh, <laughs> Jake Fromm, you know. So <laughs> some guys get it, but some guys don't. But for the ones that do it now, you even have more of a collective thing. Because I think now it will be more so the popular thing to do. Because it's like, how could you not at this point? Hey, I see my guy D-Watt out there at the protest. D-Watt, the first Sean, I did not see that. D-Watt was out there. And like, okay, now Jamal Adams and everybody else has been out there too as well. Obviously, the whole USC football team's out there yesterday. But D-Watt was one of the first ones out of here, all out of Houston in the mix. D-Watt you love there. seeing the athletes do things outside of, like, their own brand or outside of their sport. My favorite guy, Jalen Brown, he was uh, leading a protest in Atlanta, I think, last week. So – the phrase more than an athlete is definitely coming up more and more and more now. So shout out to the guys making a change. Jalen Brown went to the University of Cal Berkeley, correct? Yeah, Cal Berkeley. That's what I thought. And also just for yeah. context, in case you all don't know, D. Watt, Sean Watson, a.k.a. the GOAT. But I <laughs> just had to make sure I, I threw that in there. But, hey, y'all, so I guess we probably got to – somewhat rotate back the subject. We just went off on a rant there, but hey, every every yeah. bit of information is good information. So yeah. I don't know if the listener, whoever listening, y'all listen to Joe Rogan, but we found a clip of him talking to a I don't know who that who the lady is. I think she's from China. Or at least a descendant from yeah. China. But anyway, so the the clip was like kind of titled what we what Americans don't know about China. I like to look at different countries. There's always somebody to look for uh, for inspiration, I guess you could say. And so, like I said, she was kind of just explaining to us what things are like in China. And one thing that they do in China is they're willing to play the long game. Josh, do you kind of want to give some more context about that? Yeah, that, that is a topic that has been prevalent for multiple, multiple different years. Like with our system, the United States, that is, it seems like we are very individualistic and we are very in the now we're worried about oh man how can I most reap the benefits of the system or how can I make things better for myself but it seems like China and how she was explaining in the video she broke down how their system is set up for longevity and the benefit of both now and future generations, but the most important thing is the future generations and having that sustained success. So I think that is 100% true. And you can see it even in how our political system is set up compared to theirs. And I know there are definitely some bad things about um, their political system. Uh, I'm not sure, is it? I think it's authoritarian um, and we have a democracy. I, I know it's not communism. But uh, very too, right? totalitarian. Yeah, totalitarian. There you go. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what it is. But uh, they are set up to play the long game. Their politics are like, okay, we can wait you guys out because you guys have an election every four years, and y'all system is a two-party system where it's like y'all are going against each other. It's oh, the Democrats think this, the Republicans think that. Y'all are going against each other, and Y'all can have a person in office for four, even eight years, and they can build up these things and have these different programs and stuff. But then they have another person come in and it's like, okay, no, 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 let's, let's retract that and then go in a different direction. So it's like we take, we could take two steps forward, one step back, but in China, they might be taking one step forward, but no step steps back. And that over time, and you can even see it over the last, 30, 20 years where they have skyrocketed into the 
second largest economy in the world. So seeing that sustained success over time, you can only imagine what it would be like in 50 years where we have this incremental growth and then setbacks where, whereas they have incremental growth continuously over time and every single year they're improving on what they're doing. So, and then one can think about a prime example I'm thinking of, okay, so Obama spends a long time trying to get Obamacare. Trump gets in, okay, we're gonna get rid of Obamacare. It's like stuff like that. It's like we move forward, but then we go undo it. And then especially whenever you're going back and forth between two political parties, it's like, and then so 12 years down the line, it's like, so what was done? Because what somebody spent a long time trying to implement, somebody just tore down. And then also with their way of doing things, it's like the more powerful they're becoming. I think the girl said in the video, the lady, excuse me, uh, the more powerful their system becomes, the more they like kind of critique, not critique, but they like block out social media and information. And so at this point, we literally are all moving in one direction simply because y'all don't have no other choice. Like you have to move in. I mean, you can try to rebel, but in China, you get caught rebelling a couple of times. That's the end of it. Like, they're not playing the games. They're not going to do too much of it. They're moving forward in the direction they want to go into. But yeah, so whenever you can kind of customize what people can watch, listen to, and like information-wise receive, it's like it's really easy to go in one direction because they really don't know any other thing that's going on because they're being uh, – there's a word for this. I can't think of the word, but they're being pushed. Every just say everybody's being pushed in one direction, forcibly. Like it, it's really not even up for debate. And kind of going back to Josh's point about the um, the differences between the American system and the Chinese system, as far as it relate is as it relates to uh, the length of time that like a person is in office. Uh, I took an international relations class, and we talked about um, the different motivations that leaders have to their constituents. Um, and how that is affected by the length of time that they're in office. So like you, like you were uh, getting at, so like, like in four years, you just have to try to get as much done in as short of amount of time as possible. Uh, versus if you're, if you know that you have like a lifelong term, like you actually have the time to like take care and see that like the change is going to be implemented in a very like structured and like meticulous, but also you like, what's getting done you know that it's going to be getting done the way that you want it to and to like ensure that it's progressing as it needs to uh, and so and i think that that's kind of one of the drawbacks to how our system is set up uh not to say that i want like america to become this you know uh like a monarchy type government where like you just have people you know in terms for life because i also don't think that like career politicians should be a thing but you know i think that that's just one of the drawbacks we have to having a system where there's such a quick turnover with like leadership and like obviously the two-party system doesn't work for anybody so why we still have it i don't know but that's a whole nother podcast for a whole nother time uh yeah and there's just a lot of different political things that are kind of i think working against americans but i also don't know what to replace them with and i don't think really anyone does uh just because it's not a perfect system even though we in america do tend to idolize the democracy quote unquote that we have um, and then demonize other forms of government that may work just because of the different societal and like historical context that those governments are in place in i think also in the in the interview i guess radio show whatever you want to say it, she talks about the difference between the chinese dream and the american dream and she says, in the Chinese dream, it's more so we're going to lift a lot of people out of poverty, but your generation needs to make sacrifices <clears throat> to, excuse me, to build a strong China, you get to build a strong China, you give up personal, uh, personal sacrifices, obviously. So with that being said, I think about that word sacrifice. And it's like, if you can get to a group of people to understand your sacrifice now for what is to come. It's like everything becomes more easy. Everything becomes easier because at this point, they're kind of believing, okay, yeah, I'm doing this now, but this is for somebody else to live a better life. But it's all about the buy-in. Can you get a lot of people to buy into it? And I wouldn't say you need everybody. You just need more people off to do than not. And I guess they probably, in their, in their way of doing things, it's probably if you don't buy in, there are going to be consequences. But meanwhile, in America, our thing is more so the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Adair, can you explain that a little bit more? The, just the life, liberty, pursuit of happiness thing? So actually, the original quote, I believe it was John Locke. Uh, if you're listening to this and I wasn't right, 
at me on Twitter, whatever, correct me. Um, always here to learn more information. Anyway, but I think it was John Locke. Uh, anyway, so it says that basically every human being has the right to pursue life, liberty, and it was the pursuit of property, um, which then got changed to happiness at some point. Uh, that's, again, a whole other topic for another time. It's a life uh, basically just to ensure that, you know, you have the things that you need to survive and you have the, the things that you need to live a prosperous life in whatever way that you choose. Liberty, uh, that you have the right to, uh, all the freedoms that come as a result of just being a human being, uh, which we later uh, determined to mean stuff like freedom of speech, religion, press, assembly, so on and so forth. And the word liberty itself is actually kind of tricky legally just because it's very open-ended. And there are a lot of legal cases that kind of have come up just because of the fact that different people interpret the term liberty differently. And then the pursuit of property, obviously that means your stuff is your stuff. You have the right to gain whatever material wealth that you need, whatever material capital that you need in order to achieve the other two things. All right, Josh. So whenever we hear about this Chinese dream and the American dream, what do you, how do you, how did you interpret that? So tough to follow up with Darius, the uh, <laughs> politician slash attorney, but uh, I kind of see it on multiple different levels. Um, and you see the whole sacrificing thing. First, in a personal way, as Americans, I feel like as a collective group, we have a deep trouble with seeing things long term and sacrificing the now for later. Um, but obviously you see the benefits, whether it be sacrificing your youth or doing some things in your younger years, like whether it be your 20s or even like during your college years to prepare your life and have a more prosperous life down the line. Um, as a collective, I feel like we have trouble doing that, but you see the benefit of people that set up their lives when they're younger or start investing or start not worrying about all of these other things that don't really benefit them in the long run, but prioritize the things that do. So you see the sacrifices there, but as a collective and as a culture, you can see how generations of sacrifices can end up having all of these benefits for previous generations. So you see the sacrifices in your own lifetime, but you see the sacrifices of a group of people down the line for next generations. And I know y'all know the saying where it's like, every generation is supposed to build on the next generation. Yeah. And you see that in the black community too, like where you started slavery and then you might have something better or you might be a sharecropper or the next person builds on that. And then you end up being middle-class and hopefully um, speaking that into existence, you go from middle class to first class and you have all these different things and you see the longevity. But over the course of multiple generations, if they're making those sacrifices and they're already at these levels, it's like, where are we going to be at in 30 years down the line? And you can really see the benefits of making these sacrifices now. Yeah, delay. we definitely have a hard time with that. Because even me, like, at this point, sometimes I know, like, okay, it's better. Like, we talk like, financially. It's better to, okay, put the money in the stocks instead of spending right now. And it's like, and yet I still battle with that. And it's like, I have the information. So I know as the American people, it almost is like fighting your natural instinct to, uh, to okay, sacrifice, delay gratification versus, like, eh, I could just do it now. Yeah. So I think that's definitely, like, uh, something that most Americans struggle with. Yo, we are. It's funny. We are running a little bit over, but hey, a lot yeah. of information don't come don't come easy. So, <laughs> so but yo, so back to the kind of Mike thing. So, they he went on the Breakfast Club. DJ Envy, Charlemagne, obviously Angela Yee, and that was one of the best interviews. Killer really destroyed. I don't know what to call him Killer. Oh, that, that that just don't sound good. Mike really <laughs> destroyed this interview. One thing I thought that was pretty cool about it, it, he literally reminds me of how it is in barbershop talk. Like, if you're not yeah. out, out, you won't make it. Because he just, like, Envy was trying to, like, argue with him. And even I noticed a lot of times that Angela Yee, she was trying to talk, and he was just so dominant. It's like, you know, forget it. And I thought it was cool yeah. that he came into the breakfast club with the shades on, the five, well, he's in a 15-pound chain. It was just like, and then he kind of starts taking it all off. It's like, okay, guys, let's talk. Yeah. Uh, 
I don't know. I didn't really like how he was dominating the conversation because uh, DJ Envy was saying a lot of different things and he was giving his perspective, but you could see that they were kind of like talking over each other multiple yeah. different times. And that energy, I, I appreciate you having a, a voice and a dominant voice. But if you are cutting off other people and you are not valuing like the uh, perspective that they have, I'm like, God, bro, you, you could just, he gave you time to talk. So, and you came up with some great points, but listen in return and hear what he has to say. Because as a listener, I'm like, okay, Killer Mike said something really great. I'm trying to hear the perspective of DJ Envy or Charlemagne or even Angela Yee. Um, so yeah, that that was probably one criticism that I had of, on that interview. But uh, Killer Mike definitely brought up a lot of good points. Um, interesting, um, very, very interesting points. And I'm interested in hearing y'all's thoughts about uh, one of the things that stuck out to me the most was uh, the public education versus private education. What did y'all think about that? He brings up several different... Actually, Darius, I want you to go first. Go ahead, go Darius. No, um... So for me, I grew up going to public school. There were a lot of very interesting things that happened, which again, another podcast for another time. I think that might just end up being my slogan, another podcast for another time. <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, going to public school where, you know, we didn't always have, you know, the best books. We had a ton of kids in my classes, didn't really get a lot of like one-on-one -on -one attention. Public or private school was always presented as, you know, the complete antithesis to that. It was made to look like, you know, you get a better education uh, because you have, you know, smaller class sizes. When we were learning about, um, I guess, the fake George Washington, all that stuff, kids in private school learning how to speak Latin and whatnot. Uh, so it always looked really cool. Um, but the issue with that, um, that I didn't really appreciate until I got older is like, as a black person, uh, I did get to interact and socialize with other black kids who came from like the same neighborhoods as I did, who lived in the same circumstances and situations that I did versus going to a private school where you're basically just surrounded by white people and surrounded by whiteness in a lot of different ways and just the different effects that that can have on a person. And so I think that that's one thing that we don't really give public schools enough credit for is like the social aspect of being around a completely different mix of people. Uh, because like I said, I did go to school with people who grew up in the same situations that I did, but I also went to school with a lot of people who were very rich, who came from like very rich backgrounds, very privileged backgrounds, and I got to learn a lot from them um, in a lot of different ways, either directly or indirectly, but yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with you. I think that's one of the major benefits of going to public schools. Like you're, developing, you're dealing with a very diverse crowd. Because like Killer Mike, for example, his kids are in public school, and it's like their dad is a millionaire, owns such such properties, net value of however million. And then, then you also like get to talk to a kid who maybe uh, I don't want to say. It. Hopefully, it doesn't sound bad. It's like maybe that doesn't come from the best background. So then you get an understanding of what he's going through. And one thing I really like what Killer said is like we need to get it to the point where okay, okay. So these private school kids are able to at these private schools get this these type of resources, whatever may whatever may be. We need to being that some of our kids, his kids, go to public school, we need to push those board members like, yo, we want this done and we're going to vote you out. Or also another thing is, he was like, and we need to show up to the, not the parent conference meetings, but like, what are the meetings called wherever they used to have? Town hall meetings. Hell yeah, show up to those meetings and like, yo, we want this done. It's like, let's demand the most that we can possibly get out of the public school instead of sending your kids to the private school. And if they do go to private schools, we need some more black owned ones. So that's kind of what I got from that whole public school, yeah. private school debate. Yeah, that is interesting too. And Adarius, it's cool to hear your background and how that affected you both positively and negatively. And I feel like mine um, definitely did not go to a private school, but I would say that my public school was more so on the side of private, given that I was surrounded by white people. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing or whatever, but you talked about the benefits of being surrounded by people that look like you socially and I definitely see um, some social ram ramifications uh, with that growing up. Uh, I remember I had like multiple different black friends in the school, but uh, the most people around were like white and the whole education was definitely catered to the white perspective too. So while I did kind of band with some of my black friends a little bit, 
there was a time where I felt like I had to assimilate or change different things or even in such a, a important time growing up, like you're forming yourself and your thoughts, you can see how that could potentially hurt a person that comes from this background that is completely different than the majority of the people there. So I always wondered what it would be like if I went to a school that was like predominantly black, how my thought process would be in all these different things. And I feel like that's something that we don't give enough attention to in the talk about public versus private education and even education in general. I think in Atlanta specifically, uh, Killer Mike talked about how whenever he was growing up, he went to the public school system in Atlanta, obviously. Uh, they had a lot of black teachers and stuff like that. And in the names of those high schools, George Washington, I, have a, I think I have a list of them. You got Booker T. Washington, Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass High School, George Washington Carver High School. It's like there's a lot of pride that comes with those names and you're getting taught by people who look like you. Naturally, most of the students look like you. I feel like there's a different kind of pride. Maybe it's something you realize while you're going through it. Definitely looking back on it, it's like, yo, I graduated from Booker T. Washington High School. I think that is a little bit different. I remember going, when I used to watch the old high school football games, because at one point, I think Booker T. Washington, one of those schools, they're one of the top schools in the country. And it's like, wait, that's the name of that school? I keep hearing that, that I keep hearing that guy's name. Who is that? And it kind of has you look into like, yo, who is this, uh, who is this prominent figure? But I definitely think there's something to the pride that comes with having these prominent black figures as the name of your high school. Agree 100%. All right, so one of the things he also discussed on this interview was the Cripple Cola. I guess this is kind of like free advertising for them. So go buy you some Cripple Cola. Look it up online. I'm sure there's a website or something to it. But anyways, it's about legitimizing a gang because you see like the mafia, Al Capone, guys like that of different cultures, those gangs have legitimized. Now they can sell products like clothing and sodas. And now we all, I'm not going to say we look at them as heroes, but it's like, yo, that's so cool. And so they're like, yo, we should be able to do that in the black community too, because these gangs have spent 50 so years building up like, you know, their name, like you can't get time back. They spent that time. So at this point it's all about legitimizing it. And yeah. So I, I want to go, I'm going to buy one at some point. I just think that'd be cool to have support, you know, got to support the, uh, support the black uh, African-Americans. Yeah. I, I wasn't really sure. Is it like, the exact same as like coca-cola or is it just like something different i wasn't too sure maybe i need to do more research about it but i thought the uh idea behind it was really interesting and uh the way he was talking about us having this network or these gangs already having these networks and having this free advertising pretty much within their community and this network of people they already have what some of these brands have and some of these brands want. Like they want this recognition. They want this reputability behind their brand and behind the people that buy their brands. But these gangs or even other organizations, they already have that, but maybe they're not monetizing it or maybe they're not yeah. uh, u- utilizing them in the best type of way, um, which I feel like comes with organization and structure and really education about business and uh, finances and how it, how easy it is to legitimize, legitimize these businesses. I, I remember him saying in the interview, it's like every we all everybody loves a criminal, but in the African American community, it's like we don't necessarily like in other communities. It's like yeah, my grandfather whatever did what he had to do just to like make sure we can make ends meet and something. But in the African-American community, maybe it's just because of how we're already perceived to the outside world. It's like, you don't want to talk about your cousin that had to just go to jail for 20 years. Maybe he was stealing, whatever the case may be, but he was doing, obviously doing it maybe for personal gain, but also maybe he's doing it to put food on the table. But we, it's not talked about like, yo, yo, we value that. It's like, dang, my cousin just got 20 years. Like, you know what I'm saying? So that definitely is a, a major a factor in that. Yeah, um, something else the killer might talked about in the, the interview that kind of gets at that point um, was he said the kids don't watch drug dealers, they watch business people. Um, because obviously, like, when a kid's growing up and they see, you know, the, I guess, the guy who lives down the street around the corner, whatever, selling drugs, like, they don't watch him sell drugs. They just see the fact that, you know, he uh, has money and is, like, you know, buying all these cars. Uh, and doing all this stuff with it. And so they want that. They don't necessarily see, you know, the negative repercussions that come along with it. 
Um, and people love to complain about people selling drugs, but then don't do anything to change the system that makes a drug dealer in the first place. So like, yeah, if you don't want people to sell drugs, then like, you know, invest in like better education so that people can move on. And even if they choose to go to college, that's great. If they don't choose to college, that's great. But we educated them while we had the chance to. Or reform the system so that whenever people do come out of jail for selling drugs, that they can get a job and like don't have to resort to selling drugs just to make ends meet. Because uh, again, people don't become drug dealers just for the sake of selling drugs. Like they become drug dealers because in a sense, that's the only option they're really presented with. Yeah, I think that point where he was saying they don't see drug dealers, they see businessmen. I think that's 100% fact because I don't think anyone innately says, hey, man, I want to sell drugs. They say, hey, I want to make money. Like I want to exchange goods or something like that. Um, And even with drug dealers and stuff, they're operating business. And I'm not trying to condone or anything like the, the drug trade or anything involving drugs, but they're operating a business. Do you know that they are thinking about their profits and losses and their overhead and all this stuff? Or if they give away how much they're like, okay, that's going to affect my bottom dollar. That's business. That's business practices. So it goes back to the Cola thing where it's like legitimizing businesses. We just have to get into these sectors of making things legitimate and taking these skills that we innately have about selling, marketing, advertising, all these different things. Um, and you see some of the richest people in our community, like Jay-Z, he, he says all the time, like he has been a businessman since forever, like back to when he was selling drugs and all these different things, but he just applied these different practices to businesses and how he operates his brand and stuff so I feel like us as a community as a culture we have the same skills we're just operating in a different arena that gives us this guise of criminal uh activity and all of these different things that end up not benefiting us at all yeah, a hundred percent. And then like with the Jay-Z thing, when you were talking about when you're drug dealing stuff like that, and it's and it's literally like life and death, like yo, you get paid this, you gotta come back with that money. And so like yeah, you're really like you actually kind of putting the heat on, you got a lot of pressure because now it's like, yo, I got to get this money back to this guy. He gave me this amount of whatever the case may be is, and I have got to get that money back because my life could potentially be on the line. If you listen to some of his music, you actually hear about like the different scenarios. It's like, yo, if you don't get this back, your family could be affected this way. Cause a lot of times you know, especially in that business, like, yo, I got to show you I'm not playing with you. So therefore, not only are you uh, learn how to do business, but you learn how to do business under like crisis circumstances. So I think that definitely, so then you put that in a legitimate thing. It's like, oh, my life and death, this ain't life and death. This is money, which is obviously free uh, currency, but this ain't life and death. Like, well, I can really do business now. It's like, okay, now we're, now we're chilling. So once, I feel like once you move into that whole legitimacy thing, it's like, okay, now, now we can relax a little bit. We can relax a little bit, just apply, like you were saying, just apply those same principles that we've learned on the streets or whatever to, uh, in a business room. A lot of drug dealers that listen to this podcast going to add crisis management to their resume. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, nah, leave that joint in. That's funny, bro. And on that note, I think we're going to wrap up. <laughs> this has been a long episode. Thank y'all for whoever stuck to the end. Um, appreciate y'all listening as always. Another episode of the Dominate the Decade podcast. That's all I got, guys. Y'all got anything else? Nope. No, nah, man, that's it. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. We'll see y'all in the next episode. Money was always on time. My plug ain't never mistreated me. Okay, this the intro. So I'ma set the mood. What's up? You thinking twice, I am too. Yeah. So ain't none of you niggas cool. Cool. So now that you know what you wanna do. Huh? Hey, free my nigga five. I got your message, bro. I miss you too. Riding in the car with my enemy. Them bullets gonna hit you too. And now that you ain't got nothing against me, I ain't got nothing against